Oh God, you have heard the confession of our hearts. We believe. Lives again our glorious King. Where, O oh, death, is now your sting? In the tender bloom of these blossoms laid at the foot of the cross, we see the assurance that the one from whose hands they came is the same one who shall bring our loved ones back to us. It is with that hope, it is with that faith, that we with joy celebrate the resurrection victory of Christ. But Holy Christ, your victory is not simply to remember. Your resurrection is to live. Teach us today how we must live because of your empty tomb. We pray in the name that is above all names. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. I need to ask you if there could be anything more glorious in this life than to personally witness a resurrection from the dead. What could be more glorious? My friend Melchizedek Paniah, one of our congregation leaders, shared this story with me this last week. Reuters News Agency carried the story. It is datelined out of Managua, Nicaragua. Cesar Aguilera, a 58-year-old Nicaraguan man, was missing from his home in Tipitapa, just east of the capital, Managua. In fact, last week he had already been missing for days. The first day, his wife and family didn't think too much about it. You know, I mean, he's just gone. But then the second day and the third day, no sign of Cesar anywhere, and the family is obviously deeply concerned. And then the fourth day and the fifth day, his wife now is beside herself. The family is frantic. Another day goes by, day six. Another day goes by, day seven. Now in absolute desperation. No word from the authorities, by the way. No sign. Nothing. And so they make the decision, finally, they must visit the Managua morgue. And there, amongst the bodies, they found the cadaver run over by a car. With sorrow, they arrange for the body to be brought back to Tipitapa for burial. The funeral is planned. The body and the casket are prepared. The service begins with the grieving family huddled around that sobbing wife. When all of a sudden the doors open and Cesar walks in. I am telling you what, you can understand this. The place goes absolutely berserk. A kid in the corner screams out, Are you from this life or the other? 
You think about it. It is as if a resurrection has taken place in front of their very witnessing eyes. And finally, when the terror and fear are gone, that place explodes in laughter, joy, and tears. He's alive. Hallelujah. Interviewed by a local television station on Wednesday... Cesar Aguilera reported that he had simply been away for a week to care for some rural property and forgot to tell his wife. <laughs> it was about to bury the wrong body and who perhaps now is tempted to bury Cesar instead. <laughs> Can you imagine the moment? You have gathered to bury him and he walks through the door alive. It must have been the same way when Jesus stepped into that Sunday night upper room door, panic and fear, the place you can understand it, goes berserk. All the while a kid in the corner keeps screaming, are you from this life or from the other? Open your Bible, please, to the story of that unforgettable Sunday night when Jesus walked through the doors of his own funeral. The Gospel of St. John, chapter 20. Read it with me again. John chapter 20. Well, it happened in Tipitapa. Somebody knows what it's like for the dead to walk living into their midst. This is John chapter 20. This is verse 19. Let's pick it up. I'm in the New Revised Standard Version. As you brought your Bible, those of you watching on television, we'll put the words on the screen for you right now. Let's read verse 19. When it was evening on that day, this is Easter Sunday, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples met were locked for fear of the Jews. I want to push the pause button right there because, ladies and gentlemen, I have no idea how many bars, how many padlocks the panicked disciples have slapped on that upper room door. I cannot imagine it. I do know one thing. They have not convened for a mighty resurrection celebration. This is not the first of Sunday worship. It, the, the, the record is embarrassingly clear. They, they closed the doors for fear of the Jews. Because you see, these, these 11 are utterly convinced that the same authorities who have brutally executed their master on Friday are now with bloodhounds on their own trail. And it is barred and shuttered. The place is locked tighter than the grave. So they twist the locks, turn the keys. But hallelujah, my friends, for the great Easter truth. You can use all the master locks in the world, but you can't lock the master out. What do you say to that? Hallelujah. Let's go back to verse 19. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Here it goes. Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. Now, in his mother tongue, he didn't put it that way. He just said, shalom, shalom. I tell you what, how could there be shalom in a room that has gone berserk? It went berserk. Look at this. Let's go to the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 24, verses 36 and 37. Luke picks up the narrative. It's very similar to John's right here. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Are you from this life or from the other? 
Shalom, Jesus says. You know, it doesn't tell us here how long in John or even in Luke, how long it took for their gaping mouths to finally grasp the glorious reality. This is, this is Jesus in our midst. Let's say how long. But John goes on in verse 20, and after he said shalom, let's read it here, verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side. Ah, still red and raw, crusty, the scars of that crucifixion. There they are, cannot be mistaken. This must be the same Jesus. And by the way, one day when you see this same Jesus, the scars will no longer be red and crusty. They'll be purple and glorious, but they'll still be there so that you can know the Savior of the world is the same one. The one who saves you is the one who hung on that tree. After he said this, go back to verse 20. He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. What do you mean? They've been seeing him the whole time. But you know, when your mind is just berserk and scattered, you can't see a thing. Finally, they focus. Now they see him at last. I love that. Then verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Shalom, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. Here comes a little mini Pentecost now. He breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Hold that picture in your mind, ladies and gentlemen. That is a resurrection community. You are gazing upon a resurrection community. A community that resurrects and restores. A community that restores and forgives. This is, no, no, no. Look, the, the portrait is not quite complete because there is a final scene yet to be played out in the drama of the gospel. You see, there's a fallen brother who must yet be resurrected. And fully restored. You say, wait a minute, I didn't know somebody else died that weekend. Yep, he has died a thousand deaths already this crucifixion resurrection weekend. And if this fallen one is not resurrected, he will be dead. There will never be a resurrection community again. It is imperative he be restored. It is imperative he be resurrected. Let me read you the story of his fall. I love this in the message. And so, in your hearing, may I just read this fresh translation of Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 54. Arresting Jesus, this is Thursday night, arresting Jesus, they marched him off and took him into the house of the chief priest. Peter followed, but at a safe distance, because you see, Peter's no different than you and me. Don't want to get too close. Don't want to be identified in public on this campus with a clo being a close follower. I will follow Jesus at a distance. It's much easier when you follow the Christ at a distance. And so Peter followed, but at a safe distance. In the middle of the courtyard, some people had started a fire and were sitting around it trying to keep warm. One of the servant maids sitting at the fire noticed him, then took a second look and said, Hey, hey, this man was with him. He denied it. Woman, I don't even know him. A short time later, someone else noticed him and said, Hey, hey, you are one of them. But Peter denied it. Man, I am not. About an hour later... 
Someone else spoke up, really adamant. Hey, he's got to have been with him. He's got Galilean written all over him. Peter swore, man, I don't know what you're talking about. At that very moment, the last word hardly off his lips, a rooster crowed. Just then, the master turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered what the master had said to him before the rooster crows. You will deny me three times. He went out and cried and cried and cried. Requiem for a fallen brother. I have looked upon brothers and upon sisters in this community and on this campus. I have seen them when they have fallen. I know. The shame. The stigma. The sorrow. In fact, you know what? I wrote a letter this last week to a brother who in humiliation fled our community practically under the cover of darkness. Because it was his birthday. I don't want to be candid with you. I saw that letter. I pulled it out. I said, I don't know what to write on that letter. And the big, big debate in my mind was, I think this time I'll just sign it. Just sign it. Nobody can read my handwriting anyway, so why bother to put a message at the bottom? I'll just sign it. And then I thought, well, hey, wait a minute. Why, why, why even sign it? Why don't you just pull the letter out? He won't know that we forgot his birthday. I mean, he's gone. He won't. He'll just say, well, I guess they already crossed me off their list. Requiem for a fallen brother. You know, requiem, by the way, is Latin for rest. It means rest. Here's the question. Is there any rest for a fallen brother or a fallen sister in our community, am I my brother's keeper? How easy it is to dismiss him, but oh, how hard it is to forgive. Requiem for a fallen brother and the resurrection of Simon Peter. Thank God John doesn't end with 20. It ends with chapter 21. One more resurrection left in the Gospels. Which is why it's imperative. Let's go. Let's, let's, forget those barred and shuttered doors and windows. We'll leave that behind. Let's race northward up to the carefree, breeze-free, windswept so shores of Galilee. It is night. Well, actually, it's, it's, it's evening right here. Let's pick up. It's, it's actually evening. John 21, verse 1. Let's read the story. One last resurrection. People think the resurrection's ended with Christ. Not one more left in the Gospels. John 21, 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That would be Galilee. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of, Can Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee. That would be James and John. John being the writer of this Gospel. And two others of the disciples. For some reason, anonymous to us. So, verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. I like the way the old King James puts it. I go a fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. Ladies and gentlemen, mark that, would you please? 
It is a shining testimony to the love of his brothers that Simon Peter did not go fishing all alone that night. I remind you that Peter has fallen in a, as public a way as is humanly possible. Ground the name of Jesus like a cigarette butt beneath his cussing heel in front of everybody that night. Turn the air blue. Jesus heard it as Peter reached into his fisherman's thesaurus of obscenities. Jesus heard it. Peter said, read my lips. I do not know the man. And boy, did they read his lips. Jesus heard his lips. You know, it makes you wonder, how long would a fallen brother like Peter last in a community like ours? I say it's a shining testimony to his brothers, the love of his brothers, that Simon Peter did not go fishing all alone that night. We will go with you. Would that we would do the same. Well, the story goes on. Pick it up there in verse 3. And so they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Nada. They caught zero. Not a fish. I mean, it's a beautiful night. The moon is, the moon is in its final quarter. We know because Passover two weeks ago was full. The moon, with this glorious, picture-perfect, silvery shimmer on the waters of Galilee. It is a beautiful night, but it is depressing. For Peter is not only morally fallen, Peter right now is professionally failing. No fish. All night. Sorry plight if you are a fisherman by trade. Let's pick it up in verse 4 and just after daybreak. Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, just a stranger on the shore. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? And they answered, nope. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, the writer of the gospel, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Peter heard that it was the Lord, he did something I have never in my life been able to figure out. Why would you do it this way? What is the matter with you? Now, you have to read the rest of the verse, you understand, but I just had to interrupt. Because he's naked in the, in the, in the boat, according to the verse. Well, let's just finish the verse so you can get the picture. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes for he was naked, and then he jumped into the water. What is wrong with that picture? Please. I mean, I've done that. I've had to take a towel or some clothes. And, but, you know, you can, you can just dog paddle and hold them over your head and then put them on. I've never been able to figure it out until this last week in studying this. I learned that for a Jew, the act of greeting another is a religious act. You would never do it, putting clothes on in front of the person. So he puts his clothes on, dives in, sloshing, dripping, carrying half a Galilee in those clothes. He trudges up the shore to greet his master. Whoa. And the others, well, verse 8, but the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, only about a hundred yards off. Verse 9, when they had gone ashore, they saw... Hey, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it. Little tip, Jesus loves fishing. Fish on it and bread 
And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. He said, no, I'm not going to be the only one bringing food to this potluck. You bring some of your fish. We'll just make it a meal here. And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Teletype, signal, supernatural, supernatural, miracle. And then verse 12, I love this. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. As the old King James puts it, come and dine. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples as a group after he was raised from the dead. Now, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, I want to tell you how verse 15 should really read. Verse 15 should read this way. I don't know why it doesn't, but this is how it should read. When they had finished breakfast, it was time for a resurrection. Now, 15 actually reads, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And then he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times, Peter, you told the world that you didn't even know me. So three times I'm asking you, do you really love me? Do you? And Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. There are many in our community who read these words and picture a nursing home. There are many in our community of faith who read these words and picture the onset of Alzheimer's. Being led about with a belt, somebody pulling me, taking me where I don't want to go because I can't go there alone. This isn't about our aged, but our aged see themselves in Jesus' words. When you grow old, they will take you by the belt and lead you where you don't wish to go. That isn't what Jesus meant for Peter. In fact, John makes sure we know in verse 19, he said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. He would be crucified upside down, led to that cross. I can't, I can't, I can't die as my master did. Upside down from me, tradition tells us. And after this, Jesus said to Peter, welcome back, Peter. Welcome back to the community. Follow me. Requiem and resurrection for a fallen brother. May I ask you a question on this resurrection weekend? You tell me. What does a fallen man have to go through? Huh? 
What does a failing woman have to do to be resurrected and restored in a community like yours, in a community like mine? I want you to tell me how long, help me out with this, how long do they remain fallen? By that I mean, how long does the adjective fallen remain attached to their memory? I'm not talking about God's record. I'm concerned about our record here. And while we're at it, let me just ask you this. These fallen ones, do they remain our brothers and sisters in the midst of their fallenness? Huh? You say, oh, come on, Dwight. Well, that just depends on whether they have really repented of their moral failure or not. Does it? Does there come a time when I am no longer my brother's keeper? What are you suggesting, Dwight? I mean, are you somehow trying to say that it really doesn't matter whether they repent of their sinful and shameful public fall or not? Is that what you're saying? No, that is not what I'm saying. In fact, you know what, folks? I'm not concerned right now about their response at all. I'm talking about our response. When does the adjective fallen get dropped from their memory? And I mean your memory and my memory. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in that wonderful little book about how to build Christian community called Life Together, makes a most disturbing observation of why Christian communities have such a difficult time really breaking through to genuine community. Listen to Bonhoeffer. In fact, I'll put his words on the screen. These are... I consider them profound in their observation. It's on the screen for you now. Bonhoeffer writes, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. And you're saying, well, yep, that's that fallen brother of mine. Hold it. Bonhoeffer in two steps is going to tell you that that is you, not your fallen brother. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, all their fellowship and service, may still be left in their loneliness. How else can you explain that with all the church work that we do, we still say we sense a lack of community, doing all the right things. There's something still missing. What is it? Bonhoeffer goes on. The final breakthrough to fellowship, let's read community there, does not occur... Whoa, because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout and as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the community. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. Wow, where did he come from? Where did she get off? So we we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are sinners. Emphasis his. Take that off the screen. Let me ask you a question. Could it be that the reason we are so hard on the fallen is because the fallen have the gall to remind us of us? I mean, remind me of somebody else. That's fine. You remind me of me. And so we pretend piety for ourselves. We demand piety for everybody else. As Bonhoeffer wrote, the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. But tragically, and this is, 
It is by that very pretending that we inadvertently choke off any possibility of genuine community. You know why? Because, look, it, I cannot risk getting close to you in a small community or a small group. I just can't. Because you might find out who I really am. You might discover that I am a sinner. And I know how hard this community is on sinners. And I know how hard I am on sinners. And I've heard your heart on sinners. You're never going to find that out about me. I can't risk vulnerability and transparency on you. That's what happens. Thus we wear our masks of piety. And we live the lie. And we live alone. How did Bonhoeffer put it? He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. For there is no community when we wear the mass of piety. And that is the tragic comedy. For what we long for most, we, pre we prevent when we pretend that we are not what we really are. Sinners, all of us sinners in need of divine grace. You see, it is an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is, don't you? It's an oxymoron. You cannot put these two words together. It does not work. Graceless community. It's an oxymoron. You cannot have community without grace. Can't have it. A pious fellowship, yep, you can have that. But it is not community. It is not genuine community. For only grace can resurrect community. Only grace. Only. Only grace. No grace. No resurrection. And no community. For the truth about grace is this. I will never extend it to you. I will never extend it to you, fallen as you are, until I embrace it and experience it myself, fallen as I am. If I don't receive grace, I cannot give. Freely you receive, freely give. But if I don't receive, I cannot give to you. If I hide from my own sinfulness and I wear that pious mask around this place... I will never know how to have community because I can't even give community to me. I'm afraid of me. If I can't live with me, how can I live with you? You see, it doesn't take a theologian to figure this one out. You can't have Easter until first you have Good Friday. And have Good Friday after Easter. Only when I've been restored at Good Friday can I resurrect someone else on Easter. I have to be restored by Good Friday first. Then I resurrect a fallen brother. Then I resurrect a fallen sister. First Good Friday, then comes Easter. Once I've grasped that truth, that God's grace on that cross forgave every sinner who has ever lived and forgave every sin that's ever been committed. And once I realize that includes me and I receive that amazing grace as Pastor Oliver spoke of a moment ago, once that dawns on me, then I have grace. I, I have grace now to welcome you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care who you are. There is always room in my community for you because Christ had room in His community for me. That's how it works. That's how grace works, with its doors thrown wide open. And when grace works, community flourishes, for only grace can resurrect community. I want to end with a story. It's a wonderful story. Brendan Manning, in his surprising book, 
the ragamuffin gospel tells this story. And he says, oh, you, maybe you've heard the story, he says. So let me just read it. Manning is a great storyteller anyway. Perhaps you've heard this story. Those are his words. Four years ago in a large city in the far west, rumor spread that a certain Catholic woman was having visions of Jesus. The reports reached the archbishop. He decided to check her out. There is always, you see, a fine line between authentic mystic and the lunatic fringe. <laughs> is it true, ma'am, that you have had visions of Jesus? asked the cleric. Yes, the woman replied simply. Well, <laughs> the next time you have a vision, I want you to ask Jesus to tell you the sins that I confessed in my last confession. The woman was stunned. Did I hear you right, Bishop? You actually want me to ask Jesus to tell me the sins of your past? Exactly. And please call me if anything happens. Ten days later, the woman notified her spiritual leader of a recent apparition. Please come, she said. Within the hour the archbishop arrived, he trusted eye-to-eye contact. You just told me on the phone you actually had a vision of Jesus. Did you do what I asked? Yes, Bishop. I asked Jesus to tell me the sins you confessed in your last confession. The Bishop leaned forward with anticipation. His eyes narrowed. What did Jesus say? She took his hand and gazed deep into his eyes. Bishop? She said, these are his exact words. I can't remember. Apocryphal, perhaps. Truth, indeed. I can't remember. For the life of me, where did they go? I can't. Remember, it's called gospel. I can't remember. For genuine community, mark it in your little book. Genuine community can only happen when men and women gather in the name of the risen Christ whose forgiveness and grace declare, I, I can't remember. It is when we say the same to each other that we resurrect a brother. We restore a sister. We revive a community. Because grace, only grace, can resurrect community. And I say, hallelujah and amen. What do you say? Amen. Amen. Not going to leave this hymn off. It is a beautiful French in Christ. You have come unto us. Barren fields that Lie dead and gone, yet love comes again like wheat arising green. Oh, Jesus, you are alive and your love has triumphed. We only ask, please, dear Master, grant us your heart that we might live your love, that grace might resurrect community wherever we go. In the name of the Father who gave His Son, in the name of the Son who gave His life,
And in the name of the Spirit who brings that life unto us, go in peace, for he is with us. Amen.